The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Food offered to idols. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, but their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in, the, in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged by, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And if so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, this morning we're going to talk about, uh, as we continue in our series of 1 Corinthians, I think one of the biggest needs uh, in the church today, and probably just in our culture today, um, and that really is the area of discernment. Um, discernment. Um, it seems like a lot of, um, not just people in the church, Christians, but even church leaders these days, um, this is an area that we are lacking in, uh, one of discernment. And this is uh, an area that Paul's going to start to address over this chapter and the next. As the Corinthians are writing to him, he's answering their questions about how should we live in certain areas? How should we think about certain things in certain areas? And I think um, for us, as, as our culture becomes more and more polarized, uh, as we uh, become more and more kind of divided in society, it's more and more important that we need to develop discernment ourselves to know how to navigate these waters, uh, to have wise guides to help us um, really discern how then we should live. Discernment really is the ability to be able to judge well, um, to be able to apply wisdom. Um, so, you know, you have knowledge. Knowledge is kind of your information. Wisdom really is to take that knowledge and to be able to think about that um, in the correct kind of way, to be able to apply that in the right kind of way, and, and, and really discernment is a part of that wisdom. How do I, how do I judge certain things? How do I determine uh, the ability to kind of perceive right and wrong, especially in kind of gray areas, um, where it might not be obvious what is the right way or the wrong way, or maybe there actually isn't a necessarily moral right way or a moral wrong way, and yet we need wisdom. We need discernment on how to how to choose which way to go, how to, how to live our lives um, in a way that is uh, the wisest way and in a way that is most pleasing and glorifying to the Lord. And so this is what Paul is going to address to us today. 
Um, and we might be thinking here, this passage seems so foreign to us. You're talking about like eating meat that's like been sacrificed to idols. Like we don't do that anymore. We don't, we don't, there are no temples that we buy meat from. Like we just go to Tesco or the local butcher and we get our meat from that. We don't really think about it. Um, at all. But I want us to be careful um, when we come to the scriptures that we don't uh, just kind of uh, bring our kind of assumptions. Um, so two warnings as we begin this morning. One, we can kind of have a geographical bias um, because we live in a certain place where those things aren't real issues today. Uh, there are still parts today, 2020, uh, large parts of the world where this is an actual issue still, um, where there are things that are sacrificed to idols that are part of the kind of common culture. Um, so just because geographically we don't live in a place where this, is, uh, where this happens in the West and things like that doesn't mean that it's still not a live issue for some people that might be reading the scripture and trying to discern these things today. Also, we need to be careful of our historical blindness. So questions and solutions of the past, just because they're not the same exact questions that we're asking, doesn't mean that, those, that there's not a, a wisdom to be mined from those questions and from the answers that they're wrestling with. And as we'll see in, this, in the book of 1 Corinthians, a lot of what they are looking at and a lot of even some of the kind of groups that end up kind of having these kind of debates amongst the church are really representative of, of what we are today in many ways because we're still human. <laughs> we still are wrestling with the same kind of human issues. We're still wrestling with what does it mean to, to be a human? What does it mean to live in a way that is uh, where, I, where I once kind of had free reign over my life. I did whatever kind of seemed right in my own eyes. And now what does it mean that I am in Christ, that he has rescued me out of sin and darkness? What does it mean to live that kind of life as a human being now? Um, and so we are all wrestling with these kind of questions. And we need really a right framework um, to be able to discern well. Um, and especially in these kind of uh, areas that they're asking. So you basically have two groups of people. Um, and, and they've written this letter to Paul, and he's going to start to address them. Um, and he's addressing these people that, that have asked, hey, what about meat sacrificed to idols? We think we can eat that because idols don't mean anything. They're not real. And so this whole, like, sacrificing to idols and meat and the whole kind of thing that goes along with that doesn't really matter because we know there's one God. And so we're just going to go ahead and eat anyway, right? And so this is, this is kind of the tier. It, it, is, is it still our right to be able to do that, Paul? Is it our right to be able to do that? And, and, and this is what I want us to help look at today. How do we ask these similar kind of questions and apply them to our lives? Um, and when we think about that question of rights, what, what do I have the right to do? When are my rights limited and, and when are they not? And what is the framework for thinking through my liberties uh, that I have as a Christian um, what are my rights and privileges that I have in Christ? And how do I best kind of apply them? And so we're going to look at a few of those things. Let's start off really by looking at, well, what are our rights? What are our rights? Um, and again, we live in a certain time and a place. And in the West, most of our rights are perceived primarily um, as being individualized rights. Um, so when we think about our, our rights or our human rights, we tend to think about them in an individualized way in our culture and context. I can do as long, uh, I, I can basically do whatever I like as long as I'm not endangering or harming another person is, is generally what we think about, unless that another person is in the womb and then we don't care about that either. So 
It depends, right? But that's the general kind of mantra. Is I, we should be free to do whatever we want to do as long as I'm not endangering or harming another person. As long as it's all consenting, kind of adults involved, then we're kind of good to go. And this is essentially their question, right? Or the attitude that we see here. If I want to eat meat sacrificed to idols, it's my right to do that. It doesn't matter what other people think. I know that idols aren't real. I know that there's, there's no hocus pocus in the meat or anything like that. It, there's no worship of idols. When I eat the meat, it's just a, a nice steak. I'm not worshiping idols when I eat the meat. I'm not acknowledging idols because idols can't be acknowledged because they're not even real. And so I have the right to, to go on with this, right? There's this self-expression. Self-actualization is really the highest good in, in our time and, and culture that we live in. Anything that hinders our self-expression or our, our self-actualization is really seen as inherently bad. It must be bad. And so this leads us most of the time to ask, can I kind of questions? Well, can I do that? Um, am I allowed to do that? Is that kind of permissible? Is that legal? And we really think about the personal implications mostly. So can I do this and how will it affect me? <coughs> we, we don't often ask, or we certainly ask it less, should I kind of questions. That's different than a can I question. A can I is, is more of a legal question. Uh, oh, am I allowed to do that? Should I is more of a wisdom question. And it, it also has more social implications. Because just because I can do something doesn't necessarily mean I should do something. So I could go out right now and uh, buy a brand new BMW today. I could do that. Legally, there's nothing wrong with that. Morally, nothing wrong with that. But that would have severe implications on the rest of my lifestyle because I would encumber a lot of my income um, that my family and kids and other things that we've kind of allocated. And now that's going to have an impact. So that's a wisdom question. It's a should I. It's not a can I kind of question. We don't often ask those kind of questions. We're, um, if you remember, do you remember Jurassic Park, the scene where, with Jeff Goldblum in it? And, uh, you know, the velociraptor, everything's going crazy, you know, because they've done the DNA thing and they've replicated. And he's like, your scientists were so preoccupied with can they, they never stopped to ask the question, should they? And now look at the havoc that has been, been wreaked. And, and it's a great uh, clip because it's really a great kind of um, framework to think about. Can I questions or should I questions? The one group is asking pretty much, can I questions to Paul? And Paul wants to reframe that into a should I question. So let's look at the context a little bit. You've got two kind of parties, if you were, in Corinth. Um, on the one hand, you've got a permissive um, kind of group. This is the group he's mainly going to address in this. Um, uh, the other hand, you have a restrictive kind of group. Um, so again, you kind of have these generally kind of maybe more progressive uh, groups or a more traditionalist, conservative kind of group, more restrictive kind of group. On the one hand, the permissive group, their primary concern is their personal freedom. You see this in the text. I should be able to eat meat. I know, I know it doesn't mean anything. And if other people think it does, well, that's kind of on them. So my personal freedom is my primary kind of um, concern, a framework that I'm thinking through. On the other hand, their primary concern on the restrictive group was personal morality. Is it right to do that? Is this a sin to do that? Right? And we saw that even last week. Uh, maybe we shouldn't even sleep with women, even if it's our wives. <laughs> and, like, there's this restrictive. That, that might not be right. It might be more. Their primary concern is their personal morality. The other group then, because of that framework and their kind of personal freedom, their tendencies were to more licentiousness, what the Bible calls licentiousness. 
right? A kind of a disregard for morality, a kind of, I have license to do whatever I will because my, my kind of freedom leads to that. And so their error, when they erred, was more toward licentious living. The other group then, on the other hand, with their primary concern, the restrictive kind of group on morality, their primary then sin or the way that they would tend would be toward legalism. They would take morality and the uh, concern for that too far, too restrictive. Now binding people's conscience um, where it didn't need to be bound. Um, This would be a a group that we kind of see Jesus interact with, with the Pharisees in the New Testament. Their moral code um, was the way they saw everything, even adding to more than what was required uh, from, from God himself. So today's passage is mainly going to look at the permissive party, although we'll see a little bit of interplay. Um, obviously, the opposite of one leads to the other. Next week, as we get into further chapters, we're going to look more at the restrictive party um, and Paul's uh, answers to their kind of questions. And so we see in the, even the first four verses of this, they're asked this question. Now concerning, you'll see him kind of quote them, food offered to idols. We know that, <coughs> excuse me, all, all of us possess knowledge. So they've written to him with this knowledge. We know that the idols aren't real. Um, and he says, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he has, uh, that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And so here again, we see this distinction you know you have this knowledge, but you don't have the knowledge the way you ought to have it. You, you have the information, but you're, you don't know how you ought to apply that information. You're lacking in discernment. You're technically right on, on, your, on your theology, um, but you're not wielding it well. Um, you're lacking in discernment, how to actually apply that. And so he says, we know. They knew that the idols weren't real. There's only one God. No, there's no real substance behind these idols. And so they had embraced this cultural practice of eating meat, um, maybe even eating meals in the pagan temple once again. And so the restrictive party is expecting Paul to chastise them. He's expecting Paul, you know, to say, you guys are way out of line here. You shouldn't be eating this meat, um, all of these sorts of things. But that's not what he does. He essentially affirms their right to do so. Um, we see some verse eight, right? So he says, uh, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't, do not eat it. We're no better off if we do. It, it doesn't really matter. If you want to eat it, feel free. Like, you have the right to do that. He doesn't restrict them from um, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols per se. We see in verse 6 that all things are made by God. Um, and yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom all things exist, we exist. One Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist. God has made all things. And so we can enjoy them as a gift that God has given them to us. You can also take gifts and abuse them and twist them and use them in ways that they were not meant to be given to you. But those of us that understand all things are from God and so then we can receive them as a gift if they're used in the right way in the way that they were meant to be given. Um, We've seen this phrase already. It'll come up again in chapter 10, verse 23, where Paul will use this phrase, all things are lawful. You have the right to do that. It's lawful for you to do that. You can do that. But he says, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial. And so there are times where, though you might technically be able to do that thing, you, you shouldn't do that thing. It's not actually helpful in that case. It's not actually beneficial in that case. 
<coughs> Excuse me. Again, these can versus should questions. This lawful versus helpful framework. The framework that, that our culture um, exists in is the can and lawful kind, right? So as long as it's legal. And so there are moral issues, and as our culture has changed, um, those things used to be illegal. Our culture now says, actually, we don't think that's immoral anymore, and so we're going to change the law so that we can, so that it's legal. But that doesn't ever answer the question of, actually, should you? We get so preoccupied with whether we can, we never ask the question of whether we should. What are the implications of changing these things? What are the implications, not just for me as an individual person, but what does it mean for us collectively as society? And so a proper understanding of the gospel, of God's ownership of all things and his gift of those things to us, it's not going to result in us being um, moralistic and rigid. This is Jesus and the Pharisees. Most of Jesus, if you read the Gospels, almost all of Jesus' conflict comes from rigid, um, moralistic, religious people. And if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity and you think it's mostly about measuring behavior, if it's mostly about tracking kind of moral strictness and moral codes, what we can and what we can't do, then you've been given a distorted view of what Christianity really is. Paul's going to explode these kind of um, uh, frameworks of both overly restrictive, um, rigid ways of thinking about things, but also just a, a overly individualized, right-centered way to think about things as, as well. The gospel is going to expose idols for what they really are, as we see in this text. They're false, they're hollow, they're lifeless, they're frauds, they're imitations of God. And so we, as followers of Jesus, we know, we realize that we can never find ultimate satisfaction in them. These things that God gives us to, gives us, uh, to us as gifts are those things. They're meant to be enjoyed, um, but they're not meant to be worshipped. They're gifts from the creator, but not creator themselves. It is from him all things exist it is through him all things exist, as we see in verse 6. And it's for him all things exist. And so when we think, thanks, mate. When we think about things like romance, relationships, and sex, great gift from God to be used in the right way, in the right context. We've talked about it over the last few weeks. But those things themselves are not God. Those things themselves will never fulfill you. Those things themselves are never going to give you purpose and meaning. Neither will uh, money um, or, or shopping a bit of retail therapy, right? Food, alcohol, all the things that we tend to, to turn to when we get nervous, when we get anxious, when we um, are stressed out, when we want comfort. Consuming cultural artifacts, film, music, art. These things won't fully um, explain life. They're not going to give us meaning or purpose. Only God can do that. Now, God can fill those things, rightly used again, right, so that we can enjoy good film, good music, good art, good food, good drink, good sex and relationships. All of these things can be then filled with goodness, understanding the right ordering of them with the right um, meaning and purpose of God that he's given to us. But only God can actually do those things, and so rightly understood, we can then enjoy what God has given to us 
rightly. But we need discernment on how to do that. We need to understand what is it in, what is it in the world that we can just receive gladly as God's good gift? What is it that, it, that doesn't have necessarily moral implications in that sense? That we, that's just God's gift to us that we get to enjoy freely. What are the things that we might have to reject because they've been so twisted, they've been so turned around, or they're, they're used in the wrong kind of way in wrong context? So we've looked at the idea of sex. Sex is a good gift. God in, invented it. God enjoyed it. We can receive that rightly in the covenant of marriage, right? Because that's, that's how God gave it to us. Outside of that, then, we have to reject that. What are some things then, and this is where discernment really comes in, is what are the things that kind of fall into a gray area? What are things that might need to be redeemed? So we can receive things, we can reject things, but, but there are some things that need to be redeemed. Maybe used, but used in the wrong way, um, actually aren't beneficial. They're not helpful. This is where it's important for us as followers of Jesus to live fully in the world in the gifts that God has given you. Um, Christian filmmakers that can redeem the idea of telling story, um, that can actually make good films, not the cheesy ones that Christians normally turn out, but we can actually engage with, with narrative of life and tell a better story. Um, Christian artists, Christian lawyers, doctors, teachers, garbage collectors, like whatever it is that we're doing all of those things in a redemptive kind of way. So these are our rights um, that we have and the kinds of ways that we can think about them. But what is the goal of our rights? Why has God given us these kind of rights for us to wield well? We saw the Pharisees or uh, the, the, the more um, restrictive party and the permissive party. And there's this idea of theology. And, and the permissive party, um, Paul affirms, had their theology right. They were thinking correctly. These gods are false. They're hollow. They don't mean anything. There's one God. There's one Lord who is created all, through all, and for all. That is absolute right theology. So he affirms that. But they've missed the point completely in the practice of it. Their knowledge, Paul says, had puffed them up. It had made them proud as if they had knowledge that they could look down on others for not having this knowledge. <laughs> These poor guys can't eat meat because they think it's like all cut up in idol worship. <laughs> if only they knew what we knew. And so they used that not in a way that w- would actually build up the other, but actually puffed them up, made them more proud, actually caused a divide and a wedge between the two. Rather than trying to be concerned and build up their brother and sister of Christ. And so Paul says, you know, but not as you ought to know. You think you know, you don't really know what you don't know. And he brings them back to this idea of what we do know, right? We don't know as we ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It is our love for God then that reveals God knowing us. Their theology had kind of stopped in their mind. It hadn't worked its way down into their heart. It hadn't worked its way out into the implications of others. It had just stopped on them. As if the gifts that God has given us, um, that we are the termination of those gifts. But the gifts that God's given us are always meant, we are meant to be a conduit of those gifts flowing from us to other people. At this time, um, meet 
almost all meat that ended up on, on your plate started in the temple, right? So the, this wasn't, you know, farm to table, you know, stuff. It, it, all, went through the, it all went through the temple. And, and back then, as it is today in a lot of parts of the world, only people of, of means could eat meat regularly. Most people didn't eat meat very, very often. Uh, poor people certainly didn't eat meat very often. Uh, again, that's still the case in, in large parts of the world. And so you had these with what Paul calls a weak conscience, who were more than likely poorer or certainly of less means than the ones with knowledge, a stronger conscience. Um, and mostly these people, probably the only time they really ate meat was at pagan festivals. Um, these are likely maybe newer converts compared to those that had more knowledge or more theology in that sense. And so you have people, as Paul says, with a former association. Their association with meat was directly connected almost always to pagan festivals, pagan worship. Now they've been freed from that. They, they understood um, that the real God wasn't these false idols, and yet meat was so highly associated to them with worshiping these idols that it was a barrier for their conscience. The permissives knew that eating meat didn't really equal idol worship, but they were motivated by their individual rights, not out of their love for the weaker brother or sister. Now, this passage gets used a lot in, in probably wrong terms, so I just want to clarify what we actually see in the text. The weaker brother, the weaker sister, the, the, the believer with the weaker conscience is not a moralistic Pharisee, right? Jesus had strong words for moralistic Pharisees that tried to impose law um, onto people um, for their own kind of reasons. So this isn't the kind of person that, that isn't in danger of idol worship. That's not, the, uh, that's not uh, who Paul's referring to. Someone who, um, I, I, the best way, I guess, uh, uh, because meat isn't, isn't an issue for us in the sense of like it's offered to idols. I'm not getting into veganism or vegetarianism or anything like that. So um, this morning, um, or probably ever. <laughs> uh, so, um, because the Bible doesn't really speak clearly on that. So, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So, I will tell you a funny um, joke because I'm a sucker for a pun. Um, but Chris was playing in worship stuff and he sent me, a, he's like, are you speaking like on veganism? Right? I'm like, no. And he's like, oh, I guess I got to pick out a new set list because I changed it from all hail the lamb to all kale no lamb or something like that. So, <laughs> Um, that was good, but, um, but for us, um, probably uh, the issue that I can think of most that might just translate across is probably alcohol, right? So uh, within the church, you have some, a certain set of people who uh, are teetotal, think you shouldn't drink, drinking's a sin, everything like that. Other side, hey, we have Christian liberty, you know, drink as much as you want to sort of a thing. So the weaker brother in that case is not the kind of pharisaical teetotaler person who's like, you should never drink alcohol. The Bible says it's a sin. And that person's never drank alcohol. They're in no danger of like going out to the pub and getting drunk. It's just a rigid moral kind of thing for them. That's not the weaker brother. The weaker brother in that kind of scenario is someone who actually has a past with alcohol, who's struggled with alcohol. Their past association with alcohol leads them into places uh, in their mind, in their conscience, in their heart, um, that, that's not a good place. It's associated with things not worshiping the Lord. That's the weaker brother. 
Not the Pharisee who's not in any kind of danger, who wants to try to use that as some kind of a, a, a moral wedge of their own. So the Bible says that we are free um, to drink alcohol, but there's limits within that, isn't there? So the Bible speaks very clearly about not being drunk, not being controlled, not being addicted in any kind of way. The weaker brother, those that might actually go back to idol worship, these people were like, if I eat meat, it brings me right back to those pagan festivals. It might have actually confused them to where they start actually, um, their theology gets confused. And yet the permissive party was focusing on their rights. Our rights, as we follow Jesus and his example, are to be others-focused. Our rights are given to us not not to, to build us up, but to build other people up. They're to be used or laid aside for the upbuilding of my brother and sister out of love for them. Stephen Um says the exercise of personal freedom is never personal. And that's true. There's always other social consequences to that, isn't there? It's naive to think that our actions, our decisions don't have any effect on other people. They do. Our actions can encourage other people, but they can also encourage them in the wrong way. They can encourage them away from Christ. Look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. Their behavior was encouraging them the wrong way, so much so that in verse 11, listen to the strong words, and so by your knowledge, and so by your correct but misapplied theology and your rights that are focused on you and not thinking about other people and trying to build them up in love, what is the result of that? It is that weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. You've actually destroyed your brother's faith. Let him astray. You see how important discernment is? The discernment is, is not just for you. It's not just so that you live your life well. It's so that those around you live their lives well. That we're, encouraged, we're to encourage one another towards uh, following Jesus, toward living the way of, of Jesus. And so we need discernment. Because was eating meat always wrong then? Did Paul say, you need to stop eating that meat? No, he didn't. So they were free to continue to do that, but they needed to do that in a, in a way with wisdom and discernment. That meant at times they probably were not going to eat meat, not because it was they couldn't, but because they shouldn't. Out of love for other people. There were times where they needed to lay aside their rights. Verse 6 brings all of um, this, this together in this hugely Christological verse. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things. So God the Father is the source of all things and for whom we exist. So he's the reason, he's the source and the reason for, for how all things exist, why all things exist. And... One Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got the Father, God the Son, God the Son, Jesus, through whom all things exist and through whom we exist. God, 
the Father, the source and the reason, the goal of all things existing, Jesus, the means by which they do that, all together, including us, we are from and for and through God the Father and the Son. This is amazing because God here shares his divine identity with the Son. The Son shares his glory with his people. There's this, within the Trinity, there's this mutual interior love, this sharing in community between the Father and the Son is now the basis for the Christian community of how God's people share their rights and how their rights don't revolve around themselves but around each other's needs rather than their own. And so why is this discernment requires knowledge, but it also requires love? So how do we realign our rights then? How do we, how do we think about a, a framework? How do we move from can questions to should questions? And we think about um, that briefly in, in the few moments that we have left. Um, we can enjoy our freedom, Right? So there are times where these people could still eat me. If we were thinking about the issue of alcohol, there are times that you can still enjoy that, provided it doesn't go too far to where you're controlled, addicted. I'm turning to this for comfort. I'm turning to this for escape. I'm turning, you know, we're using it in the wrong way. But there might be times where because of who we're with, we're actually not going to go to the pub. We're going to go to the cafe instead. We're going to be mindful Jesus, the ultimate stronger brother, laid down his rights for us, the ultimate weaker brother and sister. That's who we follow. Um, Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. I imagine we'll come back to this passage um, probably over the next coming weeks or so. Philippians 2. Here we have Jesus's, um, this beautiful picture of Jesus's uh, humility. So Paul's writing, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. So even as he starts this off, His aim for the church is to be united together. They're to be united together in comforting one another, encouraging each other in Christ. Twice he mentions love, the same love. That we participate in the spirit together. This isn't isn't me as an individual, is it? This is all communal language. There's sympathy. There's affection for one another. And how do we do this? How do we we be in full accord in one mind? Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. This is the sin that the the permissive party is is committing in in Corinthians. They're not thinking of others as significant as themselves. I have the right to eat meat. I can go to the the temple and eat meat. It doesn't matter if my weaker brothers see this and misinterpret it, and it, it causes them to stumble in their faith. They get confused. They're not maturing in Christ. I'm sorted. I'm good to go. But what does he say? Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So how do we do that? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, all things are yours in Christ, in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. God has all the rights. Jesus has all the rights of of God the Father. He has all rights. And yet, even though he's sharing in that divine nature of the Father, did not think that's something that he had to hold on to for dear life, literally. He's willing to let it go. It's not something he's got to grasp and hold on to. I'm, I'm, I'm the son. I'm just as equal with the father. I'm not laying down my life. We, we're coming up with plan B. I'm not doing that. For those guys? Do you think God could have come up with a, a different way? And yet Jesus says out of humility and love for the father, love for us, I'm not hanging on to these rights. He lays them aside. Verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, condescended to take on flesh. But we've just celebrated over Advent and Christmas. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the model by which we follow. This moves us from can questions to should questions. From individual rights-based framework of thinking to a love-based, other-centered way of thinking. And the result of that in verse 9 then, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This understanding of the gospel, that's just what's been described to us, right? Jesus laying down his life for us, dying on the cross, so that you and I might then be able to be reconciled to God because of his forgiveness of our sin, the shedding of his blood. And then because of that, God has raised him from the dead. And over and over again, we're told in the scripture, if you'll humble yourself, God will exalt you. You want to exalt yourself, God will humble you. Like it, it, it's just the, it's a truism. It's just the way that it works. And here these people are trying to exalt themselves. We have the right to eat meat in front of these people. They don't, they don't, they don't have the knowledge that we have. They need to grow up. They need to get their theology sorted out. They need to, they need to be as mature as we are. They need to go from a weak conscience, and it was, to a strong conscience. But it was a strong conscience not used in the right way not in consideration of the weaker brother. So knowledge of this, how we apply the gospel as we think of that, should do a couple things in our life. One, it should cause us to recognize the rights that I have are shared rights. The rights that you and I have in Christ are not individualized. They're shared between all of the people of God. Jesus didn't die just to save you so that you could be free. He died to save a people for himself, collectively. And collectively, the church has those rights, but those rights are given to us that we might build one another up in love. Rights are never exercised in isolation. There are sociological implications of the cross. And many times when we think about our salvation and how we came to Christ, we tend to think about them in, a, in, an, in an individual way. And again, that's not wrong. It's just that when we only think about it that way, it leads to wrong implications or we miss. It's not a full understanding of what Jesus has come to do. 
right? And so we say things that I think can be trite sometimes. Things like, well, if it were only for you, Jesus would have gone to the cross. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'd have to work that out theologically. What I know is that's just not the case, right? It wasn't just for you. It was for a people that Jesus died and saved, saved them for himself. And those people are a family connected together. We're united in Christ. We're united in one another. And the rights that he has given to us in Christ are as a people together. They were never given to you just for you. Because that's not who Jesus is. That's not the God that we follow. We follow the God who laid down his rights to secure those rights and freedoms for you, who gave up his freedoms so that you might have all the freedoms that he experiences through the Father. This isn't a question then of what I can and cannot do, but how do I best serve others? How do I live a life of love that makes much of the gospel, that adorns the gospel, that reflects what we see in Philippians chapter 2? And that's a life that catches people's attention. That's why people ask you for the hope that you have. Why do you live that way? That's ridiculous. No one else lives that way. The second thing it should cause us a lack to understand is a lack of care for my brothers and sisters, which is what's happening here, is a lack of care for Christ himself. In verse 12, I'm back in, in chapter 8, verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers... And wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. It's not just, it's not just disconcern for, for other people. It's a disconcern for Christ himself. Because Christ died for that person. He shed his own blood for that person. This person is part of the body of Christ. The words of Jesus himself in Matthew 25, 40, right? He says, what you did to the least of these, you did to who? You did to me. He's so identified with his people that what you do to them, you do to him. And that's good news for you if you're united to Christ. But it should be a, a, a warning to us on how we treat one another. To the degree that we lay down our lives for the sake of loving other people to the, is to the degree that we understand the gospel. To the degree that we don't care for our brothers and sisters that we continue to put our rights and what I can do above what I should do in light of other people reveals a lack of our understanding and maturity in the gospel. And so on one hand, the knowledge that they had was more than what these people had. But this is what Paul means. The knowledge that you have isn't actually, you don't have it as you ought to. You think you know more than you know. And that's revealed by how you're using your knowledge. It's technically right theology, but it's really poor in practice. And you don't really understand the deeper implications of that. Our love and our unity is meant to reflect the love and the unity of the God in himself. The love, the way that the Father and the Son are united together, the way that the Father defers to the Son. All of things, all things are ours in Christ. Therefore, all things, whether that, all the things that we've talked about already this morning, meat, food and drink, the way God has made our bodies, our sexuality, how we use our money, our power, our influence, all of these things are ours in Christ. Therefore, they're to be used in service to and in worship to Christ. And what we see in Philippians chapter 2 is one day they will. Every knee will bow. 
Every tongue will confess. And in the new earth, all of these things that we struggled to discern how to use will be used in the correct way. Because sin will be removed from the equation. Imagine, I just can't, I can't, I honestly can't fathom like a global economy without sin in it. Like I would, I don't even know how that would work. I, I like struggle to actually think about how does that work. And yet it will. We as the community of Christ are a witness to that coming kingdom now. So we live with that framework. We live about, we, we live with how do we think about our rights. We live how we will use our rights then, now, as a witness to the coming kingdom. And so how are we discerning? Are we discerning? Do we think about, should I do this? And if I, how do I, how do I think about how I should? Or do we just assume that we can and don't ever, you know, they talk a lot about mindfulness these days. Um, and this is what Paul is, he's, he's actually encouraged mindful eating. Hey, you need to think about the implications of this. And Christians should be the most mindful people. We should be mindful on how we do all of these things. Am I using my rights? With me as the, the, the ter- determining factor, or is it love for God and love for others as the rudder for how that ship is being steered? And here's the thing, we're like the Corinthians. Sometimes we're blind to that for ourselves, which is why we need to be uh, in community with other people. It's why we shouldn't be making like big decisions on on our own. We bring other people into community to to discuss, um, to reflect, to give feedback. So we need discernment and we need the Lord's help um, in that. Let's pray and ask him for that. Father, we are um, in many ways uh, the product of our environment and, and where we live in the time and the place that you have appointed us to live. Um, we just need your help. We need help to see that uh, the, our worldview, the, the way we think about how we live, oftentimes is just not thought about. We just kind of are caught in the flow of how our culture kind of thinks about things or how they think about how to think about things. Um, And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would break through those things, that you would um, prick our hearts, that you would show us our blind spots, that that we would be able to do that in love with one another. Um, Father, we pray that that we would continually come back to your word. As Paul says, we do need knowledge for discernment. And we know that that knowledge and wisdom is found, first of all, it begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins with what you've revealed about yourself, what you've revealed about us, what you've revealed about um, who Jesus is. Um, to bring those things together in your scripture, in your word. And so may we be those people that are saturating ourselves with that knowledge and wisdom. But Spirit, help us to know, to discern well, to how to apply those things well in a way that actually uh, displays what, what the good news of Jesus is, that displays what the character and nature of God is like. And Father, we know we do that imperfectly. We know we, we, we don't do that consistently. And so, Father, we ask for your help this morning by your Spirit. Um, to take uh, your word, to illuminate it into our hearts and our minds, that you would press our theology um, from our brain deep into our heart and soul, that we would not 
um, be rigid, moralistic, pharisaical people with all of their theology sorted, uh, but just using that uh, as a club to beat people with, to shame and guilt people with. Father, I pray the pendulum wouldn't swing the other way so much that we uh, just take our liberty into full licentiousness, that we just live however we want to live. We're not mindful about that because, well, hey, Jesus died for us. We're forgiven. Um, you know, we, we have all things in Christ. But would you show us uh, the way of Jesus, which is always cutting through these, ex- these extreme kind of polarizations that we as human beings create. Would you show us the way of Christ? Would you show us and guide us into the way of sacrificial love? Um, Father, it is not our nature to, to think of others more important than ourselves, and so we need your spirit to do that. Would you uh, help shape us into those people where that becomes the way that we think? Would you renew our mind? Would you change our mind? Would, we, would you grant us as your people in this church to have the mind of Christ, that we would be humble, um, that our, our theology wouldn't puff us up and make us proud, but that it would soften us and lead us to humility. And Father, even now as we come to the table, um, we thank you for the liberty that you have secured for us, the freedom that you have given us, that all things are ours through you because you laid down your freedom, that you gave away your rights. You didn't think there was something to be grasped. And so, Father, we pray that we would Follow your example in that, that although all of, all of ours is everything in Christ is ours, it's all good for us to enjoy, uh, that there are times where we lay that aside um, for the sake of others. We might need to reject some things, and that might cause us scorn, it might cause us uh, pain in the eyes of other people, but Father, that's not our motivating drive. Our motivating drive is love for others, um, love to please you. And so, Father, help us to receive what we need to receive, to redeem what needs to be redeemed, and and just the discernment we need in all of those things. Um, And I pray that as we try to live this out as a community, that people would uh, see that uh, in in, in the right way, that they would see us motivated by love, laying down what is rightfully ours, legally ours, uh, but that isn't helpful or beneficial at times, and that that curiosity would lead them to... uh, to ask, to to pursue, to discover um, all that Jesus offers us. And this is a place that we find contentment, uh, that we're able to live lives as single people, if that's what you've called us to, or married people, because these are not the things that are our rights to hold on to, but there are things to to use, to to accept, to to press into, or to lay aside, um, to see the kingdom come. for the name of Jesus to be known. And so as we celebrate that now with bread and wine, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us to secure these rights and liberties for us, may we remember the one who's done that for us and follow in that same path of humility. Father, we look forward to the day where we will be exalted with Christ, um, where one day we won't need this kind of wisdom and discernment because sin will be no more, Um, And we will live in this glorified state where these things are now inherent to us. Um, But until then, Spirit help us, even today. We ask this in your name.